All right. Um, so let's go ahead and open up. Any surgery. We're still in the book of Isaiah, just for those of you who are wondering. Um, turn to Isaiah to turn to Isaiah six, page. Can you turn the page? Forty. Forty. What's that called? And what's sort of nice, I just noticed this right now, is that um, what's nice about page forty is. We see the transition <laughs> right there. We go from six to seven, which is what we're going to do tonight. We're going to sort of go take a bridge, I was saying on the email, and go from chapter six to chapter seven. And what, where we left off last week, um, first of all, we had a really, really good, I thought, discussion and study with Steve Dixon, um, where he brought to us He's really good, you know, with the Greek and the Hebrew and everything. He did a whole study on atonement. Oh, cool. Based on that paper, I don't know if you were here, that I handed out from John Piper. Mm. They sort of initiated that discussion about, you know, why is the word atonement not in the, uh, why is it in the Old Testament but not the New Testament? So we sort of looked at the differences with the different words for atonement and saw also as part of that, I think what he did, it brought out even clearer just the radical nature of what Jesus did on the cross. That it wasn't just the covering of our sins, but in essence the wiping out of our sins. Um, and then, so we did that much of the night, and then um, I ended somewhat a little on the rush side, but I ended, we ended by looking at um, Isaiah 6, and our passages last week was verses um, 11 through 13. And just to read those again, um, 11 starts out saying, after really Isaiah's bringing this judgment of God unto the people of Israel, and Isaiah is told what he's supposed to say to these people, which is that the famous 6 through 9 verse, keep on hearing but do not understand. And then after saying that, Isaiah turns to the Lord and says, Then I said, How long, O Lord? I mean, I don't even know how you could emphasize that. It, was, it, could be, it could be in the sense of a question. Okay, how long, Lord? But I think it's much more out of maybe a desperation in part. It's not necessarily saying, give me a time. But it's saying, how long is this judgment going to come? Is there going to be anything afterwards? And in some ways, that question, how long, O Lord? We might wonder that in our own lives. Like... <laughs> Are we done? <laughs> you know, um, why keep bringing this on? How long until we get past this? <clears throat> but the very fact that you can ask the question says there's hope, because it says there's an end. You know, and we can say that in our own lives here. Our hope is Jesus coming again with the second coming. So as we look at everything that's going on in the world and look at our lives, we too, like Israel back then, like Isaiah, can say, "How long?" Is this going to happen to what everything is happening to Israel? We can say today, with the second com- coming, being in the present evil age that Apostle Paul talked about, we can be crying out ourselves, which we have a lot of reasons to do that these days, to say, how long is this going on, Lord? <laughs> how long? And But in that, the hope, knowing that God is ultimately in control, that God ultimately will make everything right. Um, so 
he asks that question, then he goes and he gives a judgment, and he's and so the Lord says, so how long? Well, here's the answer: until cities lie waste, without inhabitant, as and houses without people, and the land is a desolate waste, and the Lord removes people far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. So right there, you just get desolation. We were talking about just like a forest fire wiping out. Um, but then it says in verse 13, to just make matters worse, we were talking about how, you know, like when you see a forest fire wipe out, and then you come back like a week later, and you start seeing these little green sprouts coming up, okay? And you, you look around, you see these little green sprouts, sprouts coming up, and, and then God says, and though a tenth remains, so you look and you go, well, there's a little bit still left, it will be burned again. <laughs> So, just when you think there might be some that remains, it's like going to wipe that out. Like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. So, at that point, you sort of get like this idea, like just everything's going to be completely wiped out. And then, it says, the holy seed is its stump. And that's, there's the hope. Okay. Now, we know that that very possibly refers to Jesus coming the first time. Um, that he is this, you know, the um, shoot that comes out of the stump of Jesse. There's debate about that verse. I'm not going to go into all of it. But it, the interesting thing is the verse, when you read about what the word stump means, it actually can also mean a cultic figure. So it could actually be here that God's even talking about all the idolatry that's gone on and even just wiping that out too. But still, in that wiping out, there's still this hope that Christ is going to come again. All right. And so last week, we ended by walking through the place we, when we say, how long, Lord? Not in the time of Israel, but in our time now, one of the places we can look to is Matthew 24. And we read that all last week, was Matthew 24. And taking a look at how, in Matthew 24, Jesus gives this... I want to say, they are, they ask the people that I don't know the disciples ask, give us a sign of when you're going to come again. All right. And what's interesting is Jesus basically gives all the stuff that's going to happen, which is all the things that have been happening since Jesus was arose. You know, wars and nations against nations and all the stuff that's been going on literally for 2,000 years but he calls all those things birth pangs and then he finally says then he says what the sign is but you think like all these things we keep looking at are signs that he's going to come but they're not they're actually just birth pangs of what ultimately will be the sign of him coming and what it says in Matthew 24 is that the sign of him coming will come like that. No warning. The word is used immediately. Christ shows up. So it's not like, you know, some people think, oh, well, look at what's happening in the world right now. That means he's going to come in 10 days <laughs> or whatever it is. And here's people who have made dates for 2,000 years. In essence, what we see there is that he says, when he comes, there's no warning. It's going to literally be instantaneous um, that he comes. Um, and so he says that in Matthew 24 afterwards, Jesus says, that's why the most important thing is don't try to figure out the time and the seasons. Be ready. Period. Be ready. So that's where we left off last week. 
Um, and as we sort of continue that part, Pete brought up Daniel at the very end last week as far as that discussion goes. And um, he, I was going to have him just continue then to close off this discussion about Jesus coming again and some of the prophecy around that and have Pete take over and just talk for the next whatever period of time we have. Um, not for the whole night, but just for at least part of the night. Go through... And he's got some ideas around that. I just want to let him share it. Um, and then we will, after that, actually start in on Chapter 7. Okay? Tonight. You're yeah, on. So, so <laughs> last week we were reading through Matthew Chapter 24, which is apocalyptic end-time prophecies. The disciples are asking Jesus when they're standing at the temple and Jesus is telling them all of these stones, massive stones that were fit very well in place, that all of them will be taken off the others and no stone will be left there. So they think that has to be the end of the world because what else would cause that? Even though, you know, in 70 AD it was because there was a fire and gold had melted between the stones and, the, you know, the soldiers and everybody were tearing the stones apart. And so that was the fulfillment of that. But he gets into the time of the end and the signs of the times of the end but a lot of what is in uh, Matthew chapter 24 is referencing back to Daniel. Jesus specifically says, um, mentions the abomination which causes desolation, which is mentioned in Daniel. And so there's a few references in Daniel to the abomination of desolation. And it's Daniel chapter uh, 9, verses 27. So Daniel chapter 9. Um, what page is that? So you'll see there the reference to the abomination which causes desolation that Jesus specifically mentions, you know, mentioned in the book of Daniel. There's a few places in Daniel where it's mentioned and described in more detail. But in Daniel chapter 9, there's the 70 weeks prophecy where Daniel is, you know, seeking the will of the Lord. He knows that, that the, um, the time that Israel was supposed to be in exile is coming to an end, and so he's interceding for Israel in prayer, and he's confessing the sins of, of the nation and, and of himself and looking for, looking for an answer. Sounds and, familiar to Isaiah. Yeah, so very similar to Isaiah in, in Isaiah chapter 6. There are a few other things that relate, you know, seems to relate directly to Isaiah chapter 6 as well, that we'll see. But, you know, it says, now while I was speaking and praying, this is uh, verse 20, now I was seeking so and praying. So this is which, where are we at? 9, chapter 9, verse 20. Maybe we'll just, yeah, I mean, I was going through this, and I was like, pretty much wanted to read the whole book of Daniel, but we'll, we'll, we'll cut it down. Maybe after Isaiah. <laughs> Now while I was speaking and praying and confessing my sin and the sins of the people of Israel and presenting my supplication before the Lord my God for the holy mountain of God, yes, while I was speaking in prayer, a man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the beginning, began to cause flight swiftly reaching me about the time of the evening offering. Okay, and so, so this talks about uh, going down to verse 24. Seventy weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city to finish the transgressions and to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up 
vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy place. Can I stop you right there for a second? Yeah. Just, uh, yeah. It's interesting you just what you just read because this was because of what Steve did last week. Is yeah the reconciliation. Well, the reconciliation is like my version says. Which version do you have? I'm reading from um, New King James right now. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So because here in mine it says atone okay. for the iniquity, just like Isaiah does. It does. So, yeah. yeah. So, yeah, yeah. So it's I, did, I was going to point that out. Yeah, okay, yeah. good. All right. Yeah, and so this is this is directly related to, you know, Isaiah chapter 6 and how it's it's like how long, you know, how long, Lord, Lord <coughs> when when will this when will this end? Because it's really all all about the um, the sin and the atonement, right? And then bringing this everlasting righteousness. So it's it's it says it's seventy weeks here and it lays it out. So there's specific time periods. The next portion talks about the Messiah. So know and therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and sixty two sevens. The street shall be rebuilt again and the wall, even in troublesome times. And after the sixty two weeks Messiah will be cut off but not for himself. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. So this is saying the Messiah shall be cut off or put to death, right? This is, this, this is a prophecy specifically about the time frame from a specific start point until the Messiah, um, hmm. which I think is it's amazing that that's in Scripture, right? Um, and it and it does say the Messiah will be cut off, right? And so you so think the, cut off there means? Die. Yeah, I think I think in other in other it doesn't mean cruci- crucifixion, but it means put to death. But if you okay. look in other, um, it's very specifically put to death, and it and in other versions will say and have nothing, right? Or um, yeah, and so and and right before right before the end of Matthew chapter 23 Jesus is saying if you only you knew Jerusalem the time of your visitation right which is directly speaking of, of this like they should have known and they did kind of know but it was the ever ever hearing and never understanding ever seeing but never perceiving um, otherwise uh, you know they wouldn't have missed it but the end shall, shall be with a flood until the end of the war desolations are determined. He shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. So this is the remaining 70th week, the one week. In the middle of the week, he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abominations shall be one who makes desolate. So this is the abomination of desolation that's referenced in Matthew 24. Uh, Matthew 24, uh, yeah, where Jesus mentions it in Matthew chapter 24. So I just wanted to point point that out there. Um, that's what Jesus is talking about. It's also mentioned in Daniel 11:31. So if you scoot over. So I wonder, um, as you turn there, I wonder. You yeah. don't really study Daniel, so I mean, I, it's interesting. <laughs> That it says, and he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week, and for half of the week he shall put an end 
to the sacrifice and offering, which I'm wondering if that is referring ultimately then to the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, where no longer could they now make sacrifices anymore and haven't been able to at the temple. Yeah, yeah so, so last week you, you mentioned, I think it was last week you mentioned, maybe the week before, like the near and far fulfillments yeah. of, of this. And so I believe um, there was a, a Greek, Greek or Roman um, pre-Christ that th- that was a partial fulfillment of this where they slaughtered a pig on the altar oh yes uh-huh. and um, that was kind of considered one in 70 AD the the temple was destroyed as Jesus had prophesied it would be mm-hmm. but there's also um, there's also the idea that the temple will be rebuilt in in the last days right Supposedly, there's plans now <laughs> to have it rebuilt, <laughs> but um, so that this is yet future as well for the ultimate fulfillment of putting an end to the sacrifice. Yeah. Because what we'll see about the abomination of desolation, it's um, the person of the Antichrist or, the, or of the boastful, the boastful person that stands in the temple, in the most holy place, and pretty much declares himself to be God, right? And, and that, that ushers in different things, but we'll see in... Yeah, where are you going to point next? Sorry, I'm yeah, so Daniel chapter 11. 11, verse 31. Okay. And forces shall be mustered by him, and they shall defile the sanctuary fortress, and they shall take away the daily sacrifices and place there the abomination of desolation. So if you read through this section, this is going through very specific prophecies about um, you know, different things. One of them is this abomination which causes desolation that's mentioned by Jesus in Matthew 24. Mm-hmm. Uh, another thing I wanted to point out was in Matthew 24, Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man, which is one of his favorite titles. But the other place you really find the reference to the Son of Man is in the book of Daniel. So Matthew 24, 24, 27, 30, 37, and 44 all reference the Son of Man. Right, and we can also see this in Daniel seven thirteen. So Daniel seven thirteen is I was watching in the night visions, and behold one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven, which is pretty much what it's saying in um Matthew 24, 29 through 31, right? You will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. So, um, but I did also want to read this this entire vision of the Ancient of Days Mm -hmm. because it's very reminiscent of the vision of Isaiah at the beginning of chapter 6. Right, the awe and wonder that's created by the vision of the one seated on the throne and all the glory there. So, 
Um, does anybody else want to read, starting uh, Daniel chapter 7, verse 9, and going through 14? I do. All right. As I look, Romans were placed. He said nine through fourteen. As I look, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames; its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. I looked, then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking, and as I looked, the beast was killed, and its body destroyed, and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beast, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. And I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like the Son of Man, and he came to the Ancient of Days, and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom of all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Amen. Yeah. Amen. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So again, that that's reminiscent of what we read multiple times in Isaiah chapter six, and the scene there, and the awe that should be inspired by that, um, by that scene and the glory there. Um, there's also mention of the wise. So, okay, uh, what I'd originally suggested is that we read. Daniel chapter 12, which is one of the apocalyptic, apocalyptic end-time visions, um, the most, I guess, dedicated to the end times in the Old Testament, that, that goes along well with Matthew 24. So anybody want to read the first five verses of Daniel chapter 12? <coughs> Sure. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Go for it. At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince, who was in charge of your people. And there shall be a time of trouble such as never has been si- since there was a nation until that time. But at that time your people shall be delivered, everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above. And those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. Then I, Daniel, looked, and behold, two others stood on one on his bank of the stream and one on the bank of the stream. Did you say one, one through yeah. five? Yeah. Uh, anyone, uh, anybody want to read 6 through 10? Sure. And someone said to the man, clothed in linen, who is above the waters of the stream? 
How long shall it be till the end of these wonders? And I heard the man clothed in linen, who was above the waters of the stream. He raised his right hand and his left hand toward heaven and swore by him who lives forever that it would be for a time, times and a half a time, and that when the shattering of the power of the holy people come to an end, all these things would be finished. I heard, but I did not understand. Then I said, O my Lord, what shall be the outcome of these things? He said, Go your way, Daniel, for these words are shut up and sealed until the time of the end. Many shall purify themselves and make themselves white and be refined. But the wicked shall act wickedly, and none of the wicked shall understand. But those who are wise shall understand. And from the time that the regular burnt offering is taken away, and the abomination that makes desolate is set up, there shall be 1,290 days. Blessed is he who waits and arrives at the 1,335 days. But go by your way till the end, and you shall rest and shall stand in your allotted place at the end of these days. Wow, that's pretty specific. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and so I think there's parallels here as well. Um, one being verse 3, those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the firmament. So those who those who understand, right? You see that in... Also in 11. Yeah, definitely. And uh, right after you stopped reading in 11, it went through the whole bunch of stuff about what the wise would be doing. Right. From in 31 through 36. Yeah, there's, there's a section in Matthew 24, going back to that, where Jesus talks about essentially the wise and the foolish servants. And he says in 24:46, Blessed is that servant whom his master, when he comes, will find so doing. Um, assuredly, uh, let's see, So, sorry, 45. Who then is the faithful and the wise servant? whom his master made ruler over his household to give them food in due season. Blessed is that servant whom his master, when he comes, will find him doing so doing. Assuredly, I say to you, he will make him ruler over all his goods. So that's one, that's one parallel. Another is, you know, as we were just opening up, the question of how long. The question of how long is, is asked in Isaiah chapter 6, right. Matthew 24, and here in Daniel chapter 12. Hmm. All right. Yeah, I love the echoes. It reminds me of that diagram I showed at the very beginning of Isaiah with all those connections between all scripture and all the different connections that it makes. 
it's like you just see so many different connections here. Yeah. Yeah, so you see the hope um, in Daniel. Daniel will be will arise to his inheritance at the end of the days and um, the blessings for the wise here and the everlasting dominion mm-hmm. and the glory that's seen and the end of sin and transgressions um, like these are a lot of good parallels to to Isaiah six, mm-hmm. right? Tying in, tying in the end times. Good. Yep. Pretty much all I had. Yeah. Good. Thank you, Pete. Anybody got well, questions or don't ask us too many questions? <laughs> like when? Yeah. <laughs> what day? Yeah, yeah. yeah you kind of go. Gosh, it was certainly for there for all them, you know, to gather it in, and like even Zechariah nine nine, where he says. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation, is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the fill of a donkey. And I thought, when I saw that coming down the hill, I went, You know, the, um, and I didn't realize this, I don't know, it was several years, many years ago, but you know, a lot of times we hear the word Son of God, and we think that the word Son of God was sort of unique, Jesus using it, and, ref- and people think, well, that's Jesus referring to himself as God. When the Son of God was actually a very, very well known term, and the one who was using it was who? Who was using it in Jesus' day? Constantly who is declaring himself to say, I am the Son of God, during the time of Jesus. So when Jesus uses that term, he's directly confronting Caesar. Caesar, exactly. So Caesar is the one who claimed himself to be the Son of God. So when you see Jesus talking about Son of God, usually that is in reference, is sort of not quite way of, subtle way of saying, (laughs) who's who's really God here? Not you, Caesar. Son of Man that you brought up is it, it sounds the opposite of what it really is. The Son of Man used within Daniel is much more of a divine term and much more of a term used pointing to the deity of Christ and pointing to Jesus being, you know, with the Father. I mean, just more towards that Trinity aspect than even Son of God. Um, so, so the Son of Man is actually more of a reference that Jesus is claiming if I'm the Son of Man that I am in essence God closer to that at least um, just almost the opposite of what you would think so you know. alright good thanks Pete that was yeah. that was good and I think you know we'll get into this stuff more as we go through Isaiah um, so before we transition to actually look at chapter 7, what I thought we could do, um, and I was thinking this week, is as we get in chapter 7, I was telling you that we are going to start seeing all the stuff like what Pete just talked about, all the stuff we've been going through in Isaiah 1 through 6. We're going to start seeing that actually come to fruition in true, real, historical events in Israel. 
starting with Ahaz. So we're going to see the reality of all the stuff we've been studying in Isaiah 1-6, through and we're going to see that now all played out in the life of Israel. Um, and you're going to see basically the things we just talked about tonight, the judgment that's coming down upon it. Um, and I think as Pete brought out, you see more of this whole thing of Isaiah 6, you know, 9-10, through 10, where the judgment of Israel is they keep on hearing but do not understand, they keep on seeing but do not perceive, make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. And we've been using that passage all the way through from the very beginning of Isaiah. And then we've looked over the last couple of weeks how that passage is used by Jesus. And it's also used by the Apostle Paul. This is a constant theme throughout Scripture, which is, which is you people of God. So this is always addressed, just to be clear, this is addressed to the people of God. This is not addressed to unbelievers. This is addressed to people who worship Yahweh, people who worship God, people who worship the same God we worship. And so we see, you, and I think Stevie just sort of said this, Pete said a little bit, it's like, okay, well, here's all this stuff. Why did they not see? All right. Which we can come to the question of how well are we seeing today? Precisely. How well are we hearing today? How well are we understanding today? And we looked in the last several weeks that one of the, the reason why we don't <laughs> see and hear and understand is around the fact that we are making idols and worshiping something other than the true and living God. Mm-hmm. All right, and um, Jeff brought this out in some of his sermons. I brought up the last one I did where we were using this whole idea of this mirror um, that, that I had, saying that it says in Psalm 115 that you become what you worship. And what Israel was doing was becoming what they worshipped. And what is an idol? I mean, if I was to worship my computer... Okay. Yes, some people do worship their computer. If I was worship my computer, my computer doesn't talk. My computer, I mean, it might talk, but it's not really intelligent. Okay. Um, I'm worshiping something that's been created versus the creator. And so you think again, like as I was talking about, that if we're creating the image of God to image God to others, and we are the actual mirror, we have a problem. And here's the problem. I don't see what I'm reflecting right now. <laughs> That's right. Who sees it? Everybody else. Everybody else. Okay? <laughs> so, my question is, you know, we've got all this stuff. We just went through it. Matthew 24. We've got all these things. People are saying, you know, trying to you know, think about when's Jesus going to come again. Or just everything that's going on. And how do we know whether we are hearing and understanding and seeing God or whether we just think that we do. Because the key thing in Isaiah with this judgment is, again, it's the people worshiping God that are the ones not seeing. It's a, in today's vernacular, it's the people coming to church, a little church on a Sunday, who are there worshiping God, but then walk away from there and are worshiping something else, not even knowing it, making idols of things, okay? 
And so we become blind, and the judgment here is so severe because what God is saying is that in us becoming like the idols that we worship, we then don't even, we no longer ourselves, we become deaf and blind and, shall I say, stupid to the things of God, even though we still claim God to be the one we worship, even though we still claim Christ to be our Lord, we end up becoming blind to that. And we think, in the name of God, or God told me, or whatever, it's like, how do we know? So that's my question before we go into chapter 7. How do you know? How we can all be, it's almost like the Matrix, I guess, not knowing you're in the Matrix, okay? How do we know whether we are actually falling into not seeing and hearing and understanding God. How do we know that? And maybe even I could ask even a corollary question that maybe comes first. What are the signs that we're even doing that? How do we know that we're not (laughs) the people doing that? Every one of us in this room could be sitting here right now being doing that. I don't know. I'm just saying, how do we know that? This is such the severe... This is the thing that really ultimately says, okay, are you really in relationship with God? Or are you just sort of half-world, half-God, whatever it be? But how do we know that? How do, you, how do I know that? How do you guys know that you're... I think you've become a fruit inspector. Mm-hmm. Oh, ooh, I like that. What do you mean by that? Just what what kind of fruit are you producing in your life? Okay. And really, really good. That's good. Are you using more fruit or are you producing less, less fruit? Is the fruit spoiled or is it good fruit? Uh-huh. <laughs> Can you think of any examples of that? Um, like just doing the things like going to church and going to Bible study and making commitments and sticking to them. And, you know what I mean? Um, being there for my kids on a consistent manner, not making excuses to isolate or feel sorry for myself. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, um, it's just keep going, fight the good fight, and um, pray often and try to do what's right most of the time. <laughs> and the fruit should be there. If it's not there, then you have to question and ask, you know, why is there no fruit in my life? Yeah, that's good. We talked about that a little bit when we did the parable. You weren't here when we did the parable of the sower. And that's ultimately is the sign, is that there's fruit. That the sign of your understanding is you're producing fruit. God's producing that fruit from through you. But to produce that fruit, you have to understand Yeah. And be available. Yeah. I think there's a lot of signs in the Bible, though, of people that were in various stages that were producing the opposite of fruit. <clears throat> they were sitting in jail. They were captives. They were <coughs> beaten down, wounded, whatever it is. And so are you in that relationship? I think is something that individually you have to be I mean we've got we've got the word, right? To test ourselves against mm-hmm. constantly, all day long. And the immersion in that 
and the immersion into what is that reality. What is the kingdom reality? That's something that I feel like, for me, is an all-day-long process. Is what I just said, what I should have said, and not like what I should, gosh, yeah, I could have rewrote, is that, is that something that, that dwells in the kingdom or not? Right? And, and if it isn't, let's not do that again. Mm-hmm. Right? Or, uh, yeah. Wh- and how do you know that? How do I know? Well, because I can read about it. Okay. It's very straightforward. In addition to that, when I pray about that, Again, as we're in that kingdom, that reality, prayer no longer is a separated thing. I'm here, God's over there. Now, God's like, that's what we're being told here. No, come in with me. Mm -hmm. And now when you pray, it's as real as the sun shining. And I pray for growth in that kingdom I pray to be taught I pray to be taught in my sleep I pray to be taught while I'm awake I pray to be corrected etc etc all day long every day constantly show me in my dreams mm-hmm. and and the prayer is answered but that's a has to be that's my participation that's my commitment that's my requirement and then to be honest with myself and be constantly questioning myself. Am I there? Father? Jesus? Lord? Am, you know, you with me? Am I blowing it? Oh, yeah. Much of the time, the answer is yes. Mm-hmm. Okay? Most of the time, probably. But nonetheless, as long as that refinement is continuing to happen, then I, then I know I'm Knowing God. Okay. I I like that it's relational, and I I think, you know, you you kind of go, Am I hearing from the Lord? Like, we should be hearing from the Lord in some form of matter, whether it's through the reading of the Word. Um, And I like what Samuel says in uh, 115, Samuel said, that the Lord is greater delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord. Behold, to obey is better than to sacrifice mm-hmm. and to hearken than the fat of rams. And listen to this part. For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. Hmm. Hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so there's some kind of bars for us. I mean, are we stubborn? Are we right. A little rebellious? Right. And he pretty much spells it right. How do you out. catch yourself in that, though? I feel conviction when I do something immediately. Okay. Bad decisions, often. So you feel that? You get yeah. a sense like God's like, quick. wake up. Yeah. Real quick. <laughs> okay. Yeah, that's good. so uh-huh. we're not trying to make them further and further apart. And that's how you know you're in a relationship with the Lord. Yeah. Right. And you're hearing from the Lord. It's right. the Spirit convicting you. Yeah, I mean, yeah. It, it, the closer you get, the more immediate and more dramatic that feeling yeah. becomes. Yeah. Oops. Yeah. 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 Oh, yeah. <laughs> Not again. No, but try to make them further apart, your bad decisions. 
best we can. And we can, but you know, if we're doing the right things. And Think about it. How about others? Yeah, John. I've always felt the connection right here. And happiness, joyful, when I'm connected with the Lord. If I'm not, I'm angry, mm. bitter, uh, withdrawn. Uh, and as soon as I turn it around and start being connected with others and helping rather than taking, I immediately feel that joy of happiness returning. Mm. So that's the easiest way for me to tell how, yeah. how I'm feeling in here. Not up here. You know, yeah. get all screwed up. More you know, <laughs> that computer <laughs> thing going, and I'm worshiping <laughs> academics and right. nonsense, and things that really aren't truly important. <clears throat> but you feel it very simply and directly, I felt. Mm-hmm. Um, and you, other people sense it immediately, too. Just look at you. Mm-hmm. If he doesn't have a smile on his face like Jeff, you know he's not connected. <laughs> Jeff's always got a smile on his face, and I'm always smiling too when I'm connected with the Lord. Uh-huh. It's just automatic. Mm-hmm. Uh, not that a grinning idiot is connected with the Lord, but it's it's just one of the symptoms that you're re- you're reflecting when you're connected with your creator. Yeah, which I guess gets a little bit to the fruit we were talking about too. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's yeah, part of the time. fruit. Galatians right? five, right? Peace. Yeah. Through the spirit, through the spirit, right? Yeah, yeah. very good. Yeah, through the, the flesh. Spirit. I think my yeah. biggest one's patience and love. Like I know hmm. difficult neighbors, and I make conversation with them, not being judgy, and I'm just extending love. Or you know, I had a thought of going and visiting convalescent hospitals because I live or whatever I live by Leisure World. Uh-huh. And I thought of giving back and, and sending giving back to the youth, give back to the elderly. Hmm. Like I, I think God puts those on our heart to grow us, but it's up to us whether we do it or not. Because <laughs> some mm-hmm. really, like really, God, you really want me? To, I don't, uh-huh. don't want to go there, but okay, here we go. Mm-hmm. So I, for me, that's my fruit is, is love. Mm-hmm. It's the major one, and, and and patience, and all these kindness and goodness, and all these things surround that and produce the love. Yeah, I like that you guys are pointing to Galatians 5. That's, yeah, it's, there's a fruit right there. Yeah. How about anybody else? How do you, how do you tell, yeah, Chad? Well, like, so the question you went back to is how do we know we're actually hearing God and not just uh-huh. falling into that category of uh, hearing but not understanding and seeing but not perceiving. Mm-hmm. And like listening to all these things, I think they're all true and because, I mean, they're all equal in a sense because, like, in a relationship with anyone, you know, whether it's like a spouse or friend, there's multiple ways and multiple things that have to be done to make sure mm-hmm. it's a good relationship and you're actually understanding them. So, like, God's way He chose to communicate with us is the Bible. So, like, that piece has to be there because mm-hmm. if we're not, that's not there. That's like if we're not like listening to what like our friend is saying or someone in our relationship is saying. But then the fruit also has to be there too because if we're listening to what they're saying, but then we don't do anything about it then also that's not a good relationship. And then the same thing like with what's in our heart is like if we spend time with someone and listen to them but we don't have any feelings towards them and don't have a heart of love towards them, then that's also not a good relationship. So I think, I don't know if there's like an order which is more important, but like I think for sure they all matter and mm-hmm. we need them all to know that we're in a good, um, that we're actually hearing what God wants. And then also like the final thing that I can think of is he gives us like groups like this and he gives us the, body of Christ for a reason mm-hmm. and I, I think one of those reasons is to actually confirm that like we're on the right path of things so like people can examine our lives or also 
examine like how we're interpreting scripture and we can run that by each other to make sure it's actually accurate. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Two minds are better than one. Yeah, good, good. good. Yeah. I was, um, when we were talking about forgiveness a few weeks ago, Peter asked Jesus how many times mm-hmm. does he have to forgive? And, um, and Jesus tells him 70 times 7, which some think is a reference to Daniel. Mm. Um, to the 70 weeks. Yeah. Well, so not actually 490 <coughs> times. Right. <laughs> 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 I could do that too. Um, but but just a, a it ties into this whole arc of a story that Jesus is teaching. You know, this like I think so much of the prophecy is him just saying, I have a plan and it's gonna unfold that frees us up to just live in this like readiness mm-hmm. in this place of trust. And I was thinking that one of the signs that we're living in that place is a forgiving heart. Mm-hmm. I just yeah. th- it's an interesting sort of connection. It's not necessarily what I would have gone, but I've been thinking about that. Like, understanding Jesus' redemptive plan. He is the fulfillment of that. Mm-hmm. But the way that we, part of the way we live into that is by forgiving others. Yeah. Interesting idea. Well, that gets to, I mean, I think you referenced me saying to you on Sunday about you know, read through the Sermon on the Mount. It will convict you yeah, right. and change you. I mean, that's one thing that I've always loved about the Sermon on the Mount. There's, if you ever want to sort of get a little checkup, it's almost like going to the doctor, you know. If they give me a checkup, tell me my health, read through the entire Sermon on the Mount, which does not take very long. Um, there was this guy up in the Bay Area. He actually was the guy who ran um, one of the Christian radio stations up there. and He would come and preach at the church I was at, and he um, preached on the Sermon on the Mount, and repeated the entire Sermon on the Mount by heart. Mm. I mean, he had the whole thing memorized. Um, I tried. I did not. (laughs) (laughs) I wish I, yeah, I just did not. But it's like, there's something really, really good that's like from Jesus that says, this is, and it's also you said about the kingdom. I mean, this is what it looks like. And you can pretty much always read through the Sermon on the Mount and go, uh, uh, not today, or, you know, something that sort of checks you with that um, you know the one Jeff preached on this weekend was a really good one and in fact I got a lot I've seen a lot of comments from people because I think that we're in a world right now that's hyper judgmental you know very hyper and everyone's judging everybody everyone's saying I'm right and you're wrong and we're right we have the word of God we're right <laughs> you know and they say it mean, mean with a voice <laughs> that tells you something right there so it's just all these different ways. Um, yeah. Anybody else that you can, anybody else as far as how you, how can you sort of know? Yeah, Pete. I think, I think there's a place for setting our hearts to understand and humbling ourselves before the Lord. Mm-hmm. And so Daniel 10, 12, then he said to me, do not fear, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and to humble yourself before your God, your words were heard. And I've come because of your words. And this is the man dressed in linen and in the vision. But I think there is a place for understanding because oftentimes in Scripture, um, you know, in Jesus' teaching, it's he who has ears to hear, let him hear. And in Daniel, it, uh, oftentimes it's, it's um, he who has understanding, let him compute, you know, the number of the beast or, you know, he who has understanding... 
let him, yeah. you know. All right. So I think there is a place for humbling ourselves before the Lord and setting our hearts to understand and being intentional about that. Yeah. Yeah. I think there's a good tie between humility and understanding. Right. Yeah. 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 Am good. I the only happily married guy thinking about my roommate? <laughs> <laughs> You, you I was wondering whether anybody was going to bring that up. So. <laughs> you just can't. You can't hide at home, right? Very good. Yeah. Very, right, very so good. if that's our first ministry. Yeah. I was going to ask the question, which I think you just answered, which is, who is the one that can tell you what you're reflecting best? Yeah. It's your wife. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Not a prophet in your own town. Yeah. Yeah. So the emperor clothes are off. <laughs> they see you like you really are. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. No, I mean for me that's I know we're laughing about it, but No, but I well <laughs> and crying a little yeah. bit. I mean you saying that I last night that's what happened to me with my wife. I was like I've been just I won't even go into the specifics at all. But I was getting to a point where I was just well, going along with what you said. I could feel just this frustration and anger inside of me growing. It was about what's going on in the world. And I found myself like pushing it on her. And mostly where we see pretty eye to eye and we can talk about the events in the world, we see pretty eye to eye and stuff. But I was like noticing like I'm like, this is not I'm feeling angry. And then I was in a sense taking it out on her. I was just like, What you know? Why don't you want to listen to me? Let me read this part to you so you can see this, okay? And I just, it like hit me, sort of like when you were talking about with the conviction. I mean, I felt like God just went boom and just like hit me. I'm just like, oh my gosh, wow. If this is how I'm acting, something's not going on right inside of me. And so then the next, next thing I had to be convicted of was. It would have been very easy for me to just go to sleep. And I'm going, I need to ask my wife for forgiveness. I need to not go to sleep and just ask her for forgiveness. And I had to do that. For, I mean, I've not done that for a while. Um, and I did that. And I'm just like, it just woke me up just going again. But what all you guys are saying, it's like, this, I'm looking, what's, what am I doing with my own beer I'm telling everybody else about? <laughs> right. I'm not reflecting anything very good here right now. Mm-hmm. Um, so I agree. I think it's well having done. that person or persons, and mostly you're, you're right, if you're married, it's someone behind closed doors who really sees who you are. Mm-hmm. And you're, you have a relationship that they're willing to tell you mm-hmm. who you are. And you're willing to have the humility to listen to who you are. And you, and you yeah. uh, make it make it uh, I had uh, uh, very vocal <laughs> requirements wise. <laughs> Call me out. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, that's what I love about my wife. Honestly, yeah. I don't have to worry about that. She she does. <laughs> I appreciate that about her, but she does. And we need that. We, really we do. do. We really do. Yeah. And, and, uh, Jeff's comment about forgiveness—it just like sent the, this whole like kind of whirling dervish in my mind. It uh, when we're reading prophecy, it's it's a fascinating thing because I feel like 
I can speak for myself. At, at, at one point, uh, a lot of the stuff was stuff I really didn't want to focus on so much. You know, mm-hmm. it's pretty uncomfortable until you start focusing on it. And all of a sudden, it's like, well, what an unbelievable tool that is, right? Where you can, okay, we're being told pretty specifically what's going to go down, right? And that being said, what was one of the last things Christ said? For, forgive them, yeah. Lord, for they know not what they do. Yeah. And it says the wicked will not get it. Mm-hmm. They'll just do what they're doing because they won't get it. Right. But the wise that know God will. So, what did Christ do? He said, forgive them. They don't know what to do. So, think about the sort of peace that you'd have going into that. Right? We know we're moving into the end of the times when we, when, and all this stuff is going to go down, whether it happens in our lifetime or not. That sort of peace to know that in, in all things all day long, I forgive you because you don't even know what you're doing if you're doing something wicked. Right? As opposed to getting disgruntled and upset. And why are all these people not getting it? Or am I getting it? Right. And you know, words matter. Think about the last time you didn't just say sorry like to your wife, but you actually said, said, will you forgive me? And you don't. Because us guys, we, we went into that language, I'm sorry, I did it again, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And sorry becomes doesn't mean much. But when you have to actually use the words that Christ uses yeah. and say, will you forgive me? There's something I think powerful about the words, those type of words. Um, Steve, you're. Oh, I was going to comment just as I'm hearing everybody. The uh, when we have relationship with God, and someone comes in, myself, I come in as a believer, and I'm having the assurance of a relationship with God at one stage of life, and we've come to touch it over here, the husband and wife relationship. I was just pondering uh, two things. So the essence of God wanting us to know him is him wanting to know us. That's showing Mm -hmm. his heart to us. Mm -hmm. But also the the, uh, ebb and flow of relationship. And so we're talking about it. Um, How do we know if we know the Lord? There's this ebb and flow, but there's a conviction. There's just really everything that's being discussed. Yeah. so living in this ebb and flow, yet staying within the uh, balance of conviction and, and uh, going through one work day, it's like at the end of the day, there's dryness there. There can be dryness, even with conviction interacting with whatever we do during the day. It's like we have to get replenished. In mm-hmm. Tuesdays we do here at night, even everyone's tired, but we're getting replenished before you go home to the next, you know. And so it all comes together. Uh, but there is this ebb and flow. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I can be a believer, but I'm in an ebb and flow. And yet he's still reaching down through Isaiah and saying, you believers, do you know me? No, you don't. <laughs> but there's like this, uh, it's just so alive. It's like the living word. It's a, yeah, it's a living word. Anyone else? Just have one little thought. Um, I'm just thinking about the Daniel's prayers, and um, he, he, so he would what three times a day he would pray, facing Jerusalem, and they think he was probably it was repentance. 
mm-hmm. for the people. Yeah, for for the sins of the people. For the sins. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. Well, and I, I love that about Daniel because he's like this exemplar. I don't think he does anything wrong that we know of, right? Like, it's, yeah. I mean, certainly he did. But you're going. This is the guy that was like only eating vegetables and drinking water, like. Uh huh. Um, but you love how he stands with the people and stands even in their sin just regularly repents, yeah. right? And you're going, it's almost like God finds that heart and goes, okay, let me show you what I'm going to do. And he's just like staying low, which, I don't know, I mean, I think, gosh, it's just a good reminder in our prayers that it's, as we're talking about judging, mm-hmm. the judging is doing the very opposite of that, right? Like you're, this idea of repentance you're standing with the broken mm-hmm. and identifying with the broken. God, it's so much different than like standing on the moral high ground looking down. Yeah. I heard somebody say one time, the only time you can stand and look down on other sinners is to get up on Jesus' back. <laughs> it's like just such a ridiculous image, right? You're going like, we are like always down there with them, you know? And it's, um, I just love that about Daniel's heart. Well, I think that's a really good, I mean, when we're trying to also listen to others, (laughs) remember the prophets, because there's many who claim to be prophets these days, and there are many who claim to be prophets, who claim to worship God, who claim to read the Bible, who claim to be ones who are hearing from God in some special way, and we might see them on YouTube, but do we know what's going on in their real life? You know, and are they living lives like Daniel, <laughs> like Isaiah? Um, that call to be a prophet's not fun. <laughs> I mean, you look at Isaiah's life. We're going to look at some of that. You look at—I mean—all these prophets. You go, "Wow, God kept them so humble." And I think the other thing that I was thinking that you said, I'm just thought about right now, that how many times do we individually? or even as the guys here at Little Church, or even as Little Church, I mean, or the church as general, how do we, how do we in essence take upon the sins and show how we can take upon the sins of the world and, and I don't know, bring healing through that. I don't know what to bring through that, but just this idea of like Isaiah and Daniel taking upon the sins of the people, like Christ, being like Christ, taking upon the pain and everything of the world. How do we do that? I, I don't know. Yeah. I think <laughs> That's what we talk about. I do that. I do that in the mornings. I pray. Hmm. You know, just for the forgiveness of our nation and our sins against. Yeah. Well, that's great. Yeah. Humanity and all of it. You know, you just hmm. and you just ask the Lord to come and cleanse us and, and hmm. heal our land. You know, it's I, and oh, the beautiful thing I see about that verse in Daniel where he said when you set that day you set your heart to understand and humble yourself hmm. your prayers were heard and hmm. it's like mm-hmm. me and I are going through a phase right now where our prayers are being heard and it's it's amazing like he's she just got this job to help uh, uh, someone who's the head of a homeschool so she's her assistant and it's real chaotic right yeah, now because yeah. they just got a new campus and nothing's going right and Ami's in charge of like 
uploading everything onto the website and the, the fax management company has all their info and won't give it back. So there's all these situations where there's these just like moguls or mountains that have to be removed and mm -hmm. one of them was uh, the lady at the church where they're renting the, the schools from said you, you're there Mondays Mondays you set up the umbrellas Wednesdays you have to take them all down and so there's like 20 umbrellas and you just have like a few ladies hmm. you know and it's like the big umbrella and the big yeah, yeah those things are heavy stone those things are really heavy right <laughs> yeah and so we just like this morning we, she had a meeting with that very lady who makes all the rules mm -hmm. and, and we just said Lord just be working in her heart and change her heart that she would allow the umbrellas to stay up and mm. that they wouldn't have to move all their desks you know like the teachers don't even get to have desks in the classrooms and mm. there's all these little rules and it's like and today she just came and went you can leave the umbrellas there huh. oh. just like, mm. there he goes it's like yeah. you 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 ask him you're to fight interceding the for other yeah, and, others yeah, yeah and you just let him fight the battle right yeah you don't yeah, go right. in there to like you know, fight this lady. Mm -hmm. You just trust in the Lord that He can change your heart. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, I know. <laughs> All right. Um, well, good discussion. I was just. Uh, was, um, I would still challenge you guys. Try to memorize. I'm gonna try it again. We'll see if I can get it. Keep on hearing. Maybe know what comes after that. But do but not, not understand. understand. Right. Well, keep on, no, so keep on hearing, but yeah, do not understand. Keep on seeing, but never perceiving. But do not, right, not perceive. Make the hearts heart of this people calloused, cal, dull, callous. Um, and their ears, ears dull, heavy, 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 heavy. and their eyes. And blind their eyes, right? And see, I'm trying to get you. Blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. So you guys memorize that. <laughs> because that's a good one to sort of wake up in the morning or in the evening or whatever and just check with yourself. Where am I? <laughs> you know? Um, and that's the one Jesus used. That's what Isaiah uses. You see that all through. And you, I love Pete. You bring out some of the those. You see that understand over and over again. You look at Matthew, the book of Matthew. Jesus is constantly asking his disciples, "Do you understand?" And his disciples are saying, "No, I don't." <laughs> you know, and it's a big thing. There's a judgment even in Jesus' disciples at the very end about, "Do you really understand me?" And it's just the key thing is that's why we're here to wrestle with and try to say, yeah, I really get it here, you know. So, all right, time for switch. Okay, so we're going to now go into chapter seven, and as I've been saying, we're going to now see Isaiah one through six played out in real historical situations that happened. All right, and so what I want to do is spend the rest of our time together um, looking at the context of the situation, 
what is happening because we're going to open up and we're going to start seeing Isaiah and talking to Ahaz like who is Ahaz what in the heck is going on and so I want to spend time in the next 20-30 minutes to sort of give you a, a quick overview of that alright so can everyone is there a reflection on there is it better if I turn whoops is that too dark uh-huh. is that good Yeah. alright um so, what I want to start out with, so I want to just sort of give you an idea, so as we're starting to walk through the rest of Isaiah, we can point out some of these things as we go along. So, what you're looking at right here is, this is today, alright? This is what it looks like today, as far as all the different countries around there, alright? I don't know how well you guys will be able to fill in the map, if <laughs> it was all blank, but you can see we've got Turkey up there. We've got Iraq, Iran, Jordan. This right here, that's weird how it's doing that. Um, That is strange. But anyway, this right here is Israel. I have no idea what that's doing. Erased Israel. Um, (laughs) How dare you? Yeah, I know. Um, Let me try to go back there. Okay. So there's Israel right here. Um, Actually, if I was to, so this is present day. If I was to zoom in, and you can see, um, you know, we all know how hot bad Israel is. You can see that here's Israel. The red is the West, the West Bank. Basically, that's Palestinian right now. Wow. Okay, that's where so much of the tension, everything goes on, huh. is within that, um, whoops, within that area. So you get an idea. Here's Israel today. All right, there's Lebanon up here. Um, and you've been hearing, you know, you hear about all things going on around here all the time, okay? Um, so, that, and one of the things to note here, the reason why, why did God choose this location of Israel for all these things to happen? Well, it's because it is like the center of the world. During that time, all trade and everything that was going on in these countries and these countries, everybody notice, has to pass through Israel, all right. Israel is the way, <laughs> in essence. You think of Jesus calling himself the way. Israel, location-wise, is actually the way between these different countries and everything. So it, it was the center of the world then, and <laughs> in many ways, um, it's still where we see a lot of focus that goes on in, in so many ways because we hear about the different countries that want to destroy Israel. Um, you just, you know, the tension in this area is... Is, has never let up and probably I would expect would not until Jesus comes that's just because of the nature of everything everything going on so um, let me see if I can so that's what it looks like then this is what it looked like back in the day that we're dealing with right now. So this is what Israel looked like in the time of Isaiah that we're looking at right now. And the key thing to realize is if you remember the other map is that Israel even today covered this whole area up here. This whole thing was called Israel. But you notice on this map you have Israel and you have Judah. Because this is the divided kingdoms. Okay, because what David did in taking a look at Bathsheba, to be blunt, 
cause the nation to split. All right, ultimately is what it led to. So, is all what you see Israel here, all of Judah, that was all called Israel, and that's what's so confusing when you read the Old Testament. Sometimes Israel can mean the entire people of God. Sometimes it can mean just the northern kingdom of God. And you have to sort of know the context when this being taught. Even within Isaiah, it will get switched. Sometimes you'll be referring to Judah. If you hear Judah, you know it's referring to the southern kingdom. And right here is Jerusalem, right here, sort of at the edge of it. If you hear the word Israel, you've got to sort of know, is that, are they talking about all the God's people, or are they talking about just the northern kingdom? Okay. So this is what it looked like, Israel, during that day. And you can see they're surrounded by these other countries, these other people groups. Edom, okay, the Philistines. Um, you have all these different other people groups around them. They're always sort of constantly putting pressure on Israel. Many of those people groups are ones who were taken away and out of Israel when um, David came in. You know, when David and Jesus got the whole kingdom and the people of Israel came into that region, they pushed a lot of those, killed a lot of those people, but also pushed a lot of those people out. And so there's always these people having this tension going on. Is that the Dead Sea or is that the Sea of Galilee? This is the Dead Sea right here. Okay. And the Sea of Galilee doesn't really... The Sea of Galilee is actually... Um, I don't know why it doesn't even show it on there. Oops. Right there in the middle. Well, this is Dead Sea. Yeah. The Sea of Galilee should be right up... Yeah, up higher. Yeah, it should be like right... There it is. Up in the green. Is it in green? Oh, it's right here? Uh, it's right here. Oh, it's right here. Oh, there it is. Good, oh. thank you. Now, what we're going to be seeing is a situation at the time that we are now going to be entering. It looks... The, so when we enter now, chapter 7, there is a big kingdom that is taking over everything, that has the power. Anybody know what that kingdom is? That has all the empire, that has all the power at the time we enter chapter 7. It is, it is basically is, is going to become the threat. Assyria. Very good. Assyria. It's Assyria. Okay. So... This is what Assyria had, has taken over at the beginning of chapter 7. All right? So, pretty big empire. All right? And Assyria at this time had existed for almost 500 years, a lot longer than the United States. All right? And so, big empire, it's existed for quite a while. And what we're going to see is. As things are going to happen, there's going to be all these interactions between what's going on with Israel, Judah, and Northern Kingdom Israel, and this empire, and other, these people groups around here, and we're going to see all this tension that's happening with this, in this region, and then what God is going to do in a, in a social, political, geographical way <laughs> as far as what's going to happen here, okay? And so you're going to have, for example... Um, this is what happens, <laughs> what Assyria does, okay? It ends up taking over a huge region, wow. 
But then what we're going to see is a big shift because as quick as, this is always a good word for us, as quick as Assyria has been around for 500 years, almost like this, it falls. All right. And what you then have is you have what, what comes after that. You have Babylonian. the Babylonian Empire. Okay. And then that now takes over. Look at all what it takes over. Okay. <laughs> So you have this whole transition of all these things that are going on. At this time, we enter chapter 7. Now, I would like, I, <laughs> I was tempted to try to give you guys all this, a bunch of information to set us up for chapter 7 even more so, which is important, about the kings. But there's someone who can do it a lot better than I can, who I'm going to let you guys for 20 minutes I want you to listen to this guy talk about the situation as we enter chapter 7. Okay, The person you're going to be hearing is Rick Watts. He is a professor up at Regent College, uh, Christian College up in Vancouver. He is a foremost authority on uh, Isaiah and on Mark. He wrote a book about how Mark, the Gospel of Mark, just is flooded with Isaiah. <laughs> how Mark is really sort of the New Testament version of Isaiah. And just very, very learned guy. Um, and just, and I will tell you, I've met him. He loves the Lord like I can't believe him. He's one of these guys who, it's funny, when you hear him teach, he would just have nowhere to start preaching. <laughs> I mean, he just gets so passionate about Jesus. Um, but I want to have, I want to play this because I thought it would be better for him to say this stuff than me and me trying to just repeat what he's going to say. Um, so I'm going to attempt to play this here. <clears throat> and he's, this is actually a, something he taught on Isaiah. Um, and so that's him up in the right-hand corner. And let me get to the beginning of this. So just listen for like 20 minutes, and he's going to set up for you really a really good context, a context as to what is going on with everything as we enter chapter 7. And really, it's the context for all of Isaiah. Um, okay, so try to turn this on. And I will hand this out now so I don't forget. These are the lecture notes that he's actually going through. Um, that he's somewhat following as he walks through this. But you guys can just have this for reference. Anyway, these are the types of things we'll just keep going back and forth to um, as we walk through this. Did you guys win last night? Almost. Almost. Good. Yes. I like that. It was close. That's great. We That's all I wanted to hear. <laughs> <laughs> I struck out with bases loaded, though. Oh, I don't remember that. <laughs> all right. So he's on Zoom. It's a little bit. Oh, yeah. Actually, now I did. <laughs> Hopefully, you'll be able to hear him. He's on Zoom, but um, we'll see how well we do here. You want to be a life donation? This is the way to go. We're gonna, so that's what's going on in chapter one. Uh, sorry, in, in this period, in 8th century Judah. And then point two, as we'll see, uh, Judah was always the small part of the larger than kingdom. And if you've ever been to Israel, you know that the north, geographically, is much more fruitful, um, 
all kinds of wonderful farming uh, areas up there. So in any kind of conflict, Israel was always the most powerful. And we'll see this as we go through the history. Whenever Israel and Judah come into conflict, it's Judah that ends up getting defeated because Israel is so much more powerful. That's the northern kingdom, right? Now, you'll see that the northern kingdom is quickly about to go into exile because of its abuses. So we'll talk about Judah and Israel's relationship and most of the focus of Isaiah 1 through 39 has to do with Judah. And what he's going to do is bring up a map here in a second that he's going to walk through so you guys can get a lot better context with this. Right, so we already know it's the weaker of these two kingdoms by far. It's where Jerusalem is and now Ahaz finds himself in a terrible situation in the weaker kingdom. He's got two northern kingdoms threatening him and then there's Assyria. And you know, these, these are actually scary propositions, if I can help you see that. I have some friends who are living in Hong Kong at the moment, and they're really concerned about what's going on. It's not just a little idea for them, it's reality. They're thinking about what their future looks like, should they actually leave Hong Kong altogether. Now, I'm simply saying that because you have to realise they are in that context. These are not some nice abstract theological ideas. Judah really is at serious risk, and the Assyrians are very nasty people. <laughs> and we'll see some of that a bit later on. They flay their enemies alive, impale them on posts. These are scary, scary people. So what do you do in this situation? When you Ahaz, the king of this power now that's the weakest of all the powers around you, so something's happened between... So just a context, Ahaz is the king of Judah, okay? Judah is the southern kingdom versus Israel. And Judah is the weakest of everything going on in this area here. But Judah is also sort of God's chosen, in a sense, people as they look at it within Judah. So that's what he's sort of bringing out here as we enter this. This, um, this early period in 810 to 750 when things are going really well, now it's not going so well in Isaiah, how do you respond to all of that? And that's related to point three, the resurgence of Assyria, which is what we're going to talk about in just a moment. But uh, let me put it up here and you can see it in front of you. Alright. So this is the early Assyrian Empire and the blue section you can see on the map, this is little Judah. Alright. Uh, so you can imagine the power imbalance, okay. Uh, that's a fairly scary situation to be in. And you can understand why people were afraid. Well, Assyria starts growing, and that's what starts to put pressure on Judah, and that's what really kicks off the crisis that becomes the focus of chapters 1 through 39, which is what we're going to begin to look at this morning. Is that all right? So, that's just basically the overview. Now, I want to say a few things about the larger context in terms of the geopolitical setting. So, you can see there, again, in the map in front of you, now, Assyria has been in power for some 500 years. So it's not newly emergent. It's been around for a very long time. 500 years is much longer than Europeans have been in Australia. Uh, maybe 500 years is about the length of time that Europeans have been in Canada. It's a long period of time. You can see where it's located. Right? It's in what we would now call northern Iraq, and as most of these civilizations, they have to be near water, so it's around the Tigris River. Uh, there are two great cities, uh, its ancient capital of Ashur and then Nineveh, 
and that's some Jonah flanks. So you know about them, but. And if you've ever been to the British Museum, you'll actually see some reconstructions of the massive gates and studying bas-reliefs that came from the palace and throne rooms of the Assyrian kings. And they really are designed to daunt you. Uh, and as we'll see a bit later on, they also include battle scenes. So, you know, you're going to meet with this great king and the first thing you walk past is this display of military power and some very confronting pictures of what happens to people who ever resist. So it's all about raw power, okay? Now, to the southeast desert, in spite of the fact that it's got green, that's more to do uh, with height. So that is a topographical map, but actually in terms of vegetation, there's the desert through all this region. So, and then to the mountains, I'm sorry, to the, um, to the east and the north there are mountains. So basically that constrains the, uh, the Assyrian kingdom. And that, that's why it has this kind of half crescent shape. That's just a matter of geography. Can't go too far north because of the mountains and it can't go too far south because of the desert. So it tends to follow um, that river pattern. And that's why when Assyria expands, it's going to head north and then come down, the Levant come down through Palestine. These are the only areas that people can actually live and survive. Now, uh, in the previous century, there were some incursions to the west. There's a point two in your notes. But none of them were permanent, mostly raiding parties. So and in point three, there are some names of the Assyrian kings, Adad Mirari. Uh, he had made some impact on Damascus. And so he got that city was usually held by the Syrians or the Aramaeans and pretty much crippled it, as you can see from the notes. But he wasn't terribly effective as a king. You get a few others, Shalmaneser IV, etc., but they don't tend to, they're not great leaders, they're not very powerful. And so with these weak leaders and internal dissension, they've also got threats from the north, the Aratu people. Pretty much Assyria is unable to hold on to its early conquests. So now there's some question about whether these were actually serious conquests, looking for settlement or just incursions and raids. But all of this meant that in this early period, um, Israel to the north and Judah to the south were pretty much able to do what they want in their own region. They had pretty much a free hand. Okay. Now, what happens, and now to our next slide, if I can get up there. Um, yeah, whoops. Sorry about that. Let's going to get these controls right. So, these, I'm sorry this map is probably hard to see on your screen, but it highlights some of the neighbours that surround Judah. And what happens in this period, just in your notes, is that, again, Judah being the weakest partner is reduced to helpless, helplessness by Jehoash of Israel. And you can see this in Second Kings and Second Chronicles. Now, what happens here is Amaziah of Judah decides to hire some Israelite mercenaries. Isn't that interesting? Uh, these are the people of God and they have mercenaries now out for hire. And he ends up not using them, which means they're pretty upset. They were expecting to make some money from this. So as they go home to the northern kingdom, they plunder cities of Judah on the way. 
making good their financial losses. Amaziah of Judah is upset by this. He decides to declare war. And Jehoash, actually, he's the king of Israel, tries to avoid this. Amaziah, you know, an arrogant man, won't be put off. Well, we're not surprised. Judah is humiliated in the battlefield. Amaziah is overthrown and he's assassinated. And these are the people of God. <laughs> Extraordinary. The power plays. What's going on behind the scenes? Isn't it a good thing the church never does any of this? <laughs> it's just a wonderful thing that amongst our leadership you never see this kind of behaviour and politics and you know, people jockeying for power and people being boastful and whatever. Okay. So what he's doing right now, we're coming up to, he's really setting up to where we're going to go into chapter 7. So this is all, at this point, Assyria is sort of weak. Judah and Israel sort of go back and forth with each other. And everything's just sort of the way it is. But there's some, there's going to be a big change that's going to happen. And that's all going to ultimately lead to what we're going to talk about in chapter 7. So that's coming up here. Just a <laughs> 10 more minutes. All right. So, uh, Amaziah is then replaced by, and let's come up on the screen here. Here we go. Replaced by Uzziah. You've heard of him. He's going to be mentioned in Isaiah. Have we heard of Uzziah? In the year that King Uzziah dies, that's when Isaiah has his vision. So, Uzziah, he's also known as Azariah. He comes to the throne of Judah, and now we're into the first part of the 8th century. And he's very, very capable. And on the map, you can see those blue lines. So, he manages to take a lot, which is a southern port. He also has some incursions into Philistine territory. And he controls the Edomites. So, in one sense, he's recovering the Judah territory that they had in the time of David. Now, you've got Jehoash, who's a good, stable king for Israel. You've got Uzziah in Judah. And now, point four, they're experiencing blessing like they've never seen before. Uh, so this is under Uzziah. So this will be point D for you, I guess, in your notes. You have, um, point one, I should say, prosperity unknown in living memory. Because there's all kinds of evidence to their population increasing. It's overflowing the towns, so people living outside of the walls. Evidence of um, early industry happening there. All kinds of optimism and confidence. But as I mentioned earlier, point two here, Amos and Hosea really know what's going on underneath all of this. Certainly in the case of Israel. Right? Remember, Amos and Hosea are speaking to the northern tribes. They're very much aware that the blessing that the North is experiencing in inverted commas is not from God at all. Judah, on the other hand, tends to be less corrupt under King Uzziah. Now, uh, you've got King Jeroboam who has taken over from Jehoash. So he's a powerful king. He dies, point D, about 746, so halfway through the 8th century. And this initiates a series of unmitigated disasters for Israel. And you see from uh, point one there, they have five kings over the period of ten years. This is Israel, nor northern kingdom. Three of them seize the throne through violence. It's, this is meant to be the people of God, you understand? And they're just looking like any pagan power. And part of the problem here is that Israel does not have dynastic succession. Judah does because of the kings of David. You know who your next king is going to be. But that's not the case with Israel. They don't have 
um, the same Davidic covenant. So who's going to lead them is somewhat up for grabs. And that's why you see uh, people contesting with one another to become the king. The second point to notice is, in one sense, they've also been living in a fool's paradise. And that is, Assyria has only remained weak because of these internal dissensions. All it will take is the rise of a powerful leader and everything is going to change very, very quickly. And that's exactly what happens just after the death of Jeroboam. He dies in 746. The next year, a chap called Diglath Gileza becomes the ruler of Assyria and he ushers in Assyria's last great period of greatness. And his policies, two elements to it, or his policy, two elements to it. He's not interested now just in raids. This is permanent expansion and occupation. He's also involved in brutal reprisals, and not just that, but also deportation and incorporation. Now, that's eventually what's going to happen to the Northern Kingdom. The Assyrians will conquer them, and then that's the end of those ten tribes. They get taken out, away from Israel, resettled in other places, and, and no one really knows today where they ended up. So what happens then is after Tiglath sorts out some of his problems at home, so in the east, further to the north, he starts to put pressure on the northern kingdom of Israel, who's ruled by someone called Menahem, so this is 752 to 741, and almost immediately he's forced to pay heavy tribute. Right, so you got that sense. Um, Israel and Judah, they had some good kings there for a while, so things were going well. Uzziah is more godly than the northern king. That doesn't last very long because the moment Assyria starts to um, experience this resurgence under a new powerful leader, that's all going to quickly evaporate. And that's the context of Isaiah in your notes. Right? So, resurgent Assyria... Israel's kingship is falling apart. What are you going to do in this situation? Well, there's a chap called Pekah, and he takes over the kingship of Israel in 737. And how does he get there? Uh, He does (laughs) it by assassinating his predecessor. So, not very good news. What he decides to do is, along with resident of Damascus, they want to form a coalition to somehow slow Assyria or even deflect Assyria's incursions on their territory. So just to let you know where he's at, and we have like just five minutes left listening to this, everything this so far has been a setup to what we're coming into in chapter 7. So Uzziah is still king of Judah, but if you remember in chapter 6, it starts out, in the year King Uzziah died. Alright, so you've got, you had for many years, Assyria became sort of weak. They weren't really trying to come and take over the land of Israel and Judah. But all of a sudden they changed to this new Tigger whatever guy. He becomes a really strong leader. He starts putting down pressure onto Israel, the northern kingdom. And then Uzziah dies. And now this is where all this tension comes out because now Ahaz... Is, going to, is the king of Judah that's now going to have to listen to God. <laughs> okay, just you know, hear, will you hear, will you understand? 
and decide how he's going to deal with the situation that he's in is with this country of Judah against Assyria. And that's what we're going to be entering as we enter chapter, chapter 7. Um, is this tension going on? So, five minutes. So, remember we talked about when Assyria was weak, Israel and Judah were able to have pretty much a pretty hand. This chap's hoping that he can repeat some of these earlier successes. Now, of course, he's dealing with a very different Assyria at this point. And that leads to what we might call the Aramean-Israelite War point B, and again, I'm sorry that this map is as small as it is, but uh, what happens is just as Israel and Syria are trying to form an alliance, the massive part of Syria or the Arabians, just as they begin to form an alliance to resist Assyria and to exert their own power, the Jewish king, King Jotham, dies, and now you get King Ahaz, who's going to be the focus of Isaiah. And I'm sorry for all the complexity of this, but it's just setting up the scene. So Ahaz suddenly finds himself inheriting this problem, where there's a northern alliance who are hoping to resist the Assyrians, and they don't want an uncommitted Judah behind their backs. So they're going to put some pressure on Judah. He tries to resist this pressure from the north and is soundly defeated. And they're now threatening Jerusalem. They think that actually, you know, we're going to come to Jerusalem and put our own guy on the throne. Now, at the same time as this is happening, right, so you can see, uh, if you look on the map, it's, it's difficult, but there's a little orange line that runs down from Samaria into the blue section. Right, so Ahaz has tried to resist this, he's been defeated, these guys are coming down now and their intention is to replace him. So you can understand in that setting, Judah is going to move its forces to the north. Right? Now, what happens at this point is the fact that you've got uh, Judah's forces to the north opens up a power vacuum to the south and Eden, which had been conquered by Uzziah, now gets its freedom and starts attacking the southeastern part of Judah. And then the Philistines also, also kind of regroup and start putting pressure from the west. So you've got three forces at work. Yeah, so you get what happens here in Israel is it just it is a mess. Because you've got <coughs> Israel, which is the part above Judah here, Israel, we call it Israel here, the northern kingdom. They go through all these different kings. They are the ones that tend to go into idolatry first. They've just gotten really away from God. They actually become in many ways sometimes the enemy of Judah. Okay, And you get this tension that happens. And as he just described there, when there's tension like protecting Judah and having to protect their northern border, they send all their troops and everything up to the northern border of Judah and then you have these other countries, Philistines and the Edomites and everything. They look and they go, yeah, let's go in. And they come back into Judah and try to take it again. So this is a situation that Ahaz is now facing because what's going to happen, we're going to see in chapter 7, is Ahaz has a real problem, which is that Israel wants to form an alliance with Assyria. Okay? Because they want to be protected and want Assyria, to, you know, they want to be in with Assyria, all right? Because they know Assyria is getting strong and it's going to come down. 
Well, this is where Ahaz is, this is where we're going to enter chapter 7, which is what is the pressure gets on Ahaz for Judah to also join that alliance and for Judah to also say, yeah, you know, we'll do that with Ahaz. And what we're going to find out is in chapter 7, as we start going, is God is telling Ahaz, trust me, this is what I want you to do. Don't form an alliance with the enemy. Don't form an alliance with the Assyrians. And we're going to see Ahaz goes through this decision-making process, trying to figure out, well, what do I do? I've got all this stuff going on, and will he trust God or not? Okay. Will he hear? Will he see? Will he understand? And that's the tension we're going to see as we get into next week of chapter 7, is how does a real person, facing all the stuff we've been studying in chapters 1 through 6, with a whole country and everything, how do they respond now they've got all this pressure coming in? Okay. And... That's where we. That's where we're going to end up. Then is starting to look at that next week and start seeing this stuff really played out. There's a lot of information. I hate to go through all the stuff. But it's just good to give a context a little bit, so you guys know what's happening. Is because we're going to start hearing these different names, these different situations. Um, this is what's going on. It's a horrible mess. It's a mess, <laughs> and I think that's what Rick said here. It is a yeah. we. It we think, and I think one of the things is that we enter it. It's sort of like we do to our leaders. We're easy to criticize our leaders, okay? But one thing we find out is is a lot of times they're in these decision-making processes where you go like, what do we do, okay? Um, And that's also calls us as leadership. What do we do when pressure is coming from all these different places? Do I give in to that pressure? Do I know what God wants me to do? Do I trust what God wants to do? And you will find out it's really interesting to see how all this plays out. Um, and that's what Isaiah was really written around was this situation that's going on right now, and we'll see where that goes. So, but it was a horrible mess, and it still is. And it was exactly. Period. Yeah. Yeah. Extremeness of this is, is extraordinary, and it's really cool to put this into to real context. Yeah, I'm just trying to give you context so you know yeah. what's, it, this is real stuff going on. Right. Um, you put yourself in that situation. Yeah. It's like, yeah. Whoa. So anyway, we'll start going into that next week. So, um, anybody want to close this in prayer? Going once, going twice. <laughs> Volunteers, someone. Okay. All right, go ahead. No, you. All right. God, thank you for just allowing us to meet together and study your word. And we, I just pray for this group of men that we would uh, just be good servants of you throughout this week, and uh, just at this time here. Uh, would allow us to grow closer to you and pursue you better. Amen. 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 Amen.